Earlier uh, this morning we sang, Here's my heart, Lord, speak what is truth. Hear God's truth with me. It comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And it can be found on page 1243 on your pew Bible. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Good morning, everyone. Oh, good. You've caught up with uh, daylight savings time, I see. At least many of you have. Um, My name is uh, Bruce O'Neill, and this morning I'm as the pastor of the church, are going to explain those verses that George uh, just read to us. Uh, Let me uh, start by uh, identifying. I took one of those uh, Myers-Briggs and found out that um, Walter uh, uh, White and I are just like this from Breaking Bad. If you can kind of remember this character that uh, Brian Cranston, not everybody saw it, was an HBO series, but it lasted a really long time. But it started out with Walter as a high school chemistry teacher. And as a high school chemistry teacher, it seemed like a lot of the kids just weren't uh, listening to him. But he got diagnosed of having terminal cancer. And so in his plans, his strategy to, to provide for his family after his death, he began to cook meth for some drug dealers, and um, as a result, uh, he, it began to make a lot of money for him, but it was also very dangerous work. And when the doctor finally called him and said, oh, I misdiagnosed, you're okay, <laughs> he, had, uh, he had gone so far deep into uh, this underworld uh, that he stayed in it. He, he thought he could make a ton of money, but what in reality happened is he did make a lot of money, but it destroyed everybody's lives around him. And so it's a, it's a series of watching how one person who had a loving family, a, a, a good job, all that goes away in into pieces, so much so that eventually both the drug dealers and the police are after him. And And so the last series, we find him living in New Hampshire in a cabin all alone. He's lost everything. And um, except for one person who comes once a month and brings him groceries, all the things he needs. And, And in one of the episodes at the very end, he asks this person who delivers his groceries, if he will stay for one hour, that he would give him $10,000. 
just so he could have someone speak to. And there are a lot of lessons that you can get out of this horrible series. But one of them is that the more alone we are, the more we want human contact. The more emotionally isolated we become, the sicker we become. And how it ties in with the Bible, and I love when um, when art reflects truth. We are called out of isolation into community because God is in a community. And one of the ways in which we are created in the image of God is our need for community. So much so that they have uh, uh, proven that the worst punishment for prisoners is not simply the incarceration, not even the environment in which they live, but when they put them in solitary confinement. And so it proves the fact that we were meant to be in community just like God is in community. And that is what the church is. And that's really what I want to talk to you about this morning because that's what our text talks about, the church. Now, you got to understand, for 15 years of my uh, being a Christian, I didn't have a, a lot of use for church. I, t- I attended every week because that's what Christians did. I didn't have a negative view. I didn't have a positive view. I just had a neutral view of the church. I didn't grow up in the church. I found a lot of uh, my uh, spiritual growth outside the church in another organization than the church. But then, for the last 25 years, I've been pastor of a church. And so I have a particular passion for the church, and particularly for this church. And because of that, I love when David and the band drop out and all that you hear in this room is the unison voices. And that's the closest I get to unity of what Paul is talking about here. Not not because we're great singers and they'll be asking us to replace the uh, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir or... Uh, Harlem's choir. We're, we're not that good. But just to hear your voices singing the same thing in agreement with one another is as close as this pastor gets to what I hope heaven will be like. Tim Keller says this, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a showcase for saints. Would it What he means by that is that the church can give the impression, this is his critique of the church, the church can give the impression that we have it all together. That's We all know that's not true, and we kind of grin at that or make fun of that, but the reality of it is because we feel like in this room that other people who know us and see us, they need to see us, uh, put together. It doesn't matter that we were fighting in the foyer or, or, or maybe uh, on the way uh, to church in the car or simply that we've got something against one another in the room. But when a visitor or uh, someone who doesn't know us comes into the room, one of the impressions that people can get is that we've got it together. We're all put together. 
And I think the reason that that can be dangerous, I'm not saying that it is, but it can be, is it can inhibit people who are hurting, seeking help, and joining us. Because they think this isn't a place for them because we've got it all together, which we don't. And so sometimes churches can appear to be unsafe to those who are hurting in need. And yet the church is the very place that they've come to seek to get some solutions to their problems, some some help for their hurting. Let me tell you something that's very counterintuitive about the church. That is, in healthy churches, you actually see more brokenness than you see in unhealthy churches. That's counterintuitive, I understand. We tend to think that the healthier you are, the more that's been resolved. But in reality, the healthier the church is, the less they hide their brokenness. And as a result, it seems like, it's not true, it just seems like there's more brokenness there. And all it is, they just see it because we wear it on the outside instead of shoving it down on the inside to get through the service. Let me say one more thing and then we'll look at the text. We, let me just say I, I can't speak for anyone else, have not always handled your brokenness well. There have been things that you have done or things that have been done to you, and I have not always handled that with humility, gentleness, and patience, particularly the kind you needed or should have had. And therefore, I am deeply sorry and ask for your forgiveness because you should expect that from your church, particularly your pastor. This morning, I want to talk about the church, but one specific aspect of the church, and that is our unity as a church. As EP, I can't speak for all, to all the churches. All I can speak to the ones that are in the room with us now, which is a lot of our church. We are a spiritual family who embraces as broad as Jesus embraces people. That's pretty broad. Therefore, we have to be a family, which we are, of grown-ups and children, of educators and athletes, engineers and artists, healers and addicts, CEOs and homemakers, conservatives and liberals, Americans and internationals, affluent and the poor, single and married, lonely and connected, restless and relaxed, curious agnostics and those who are committed believers, PhDs and those who have special needs, experts and students, and particularly saints and sinners. This is how Paul puts it in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord... At this moment, he literally is. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The therefore that's at the beginning. He's referencing everything that has gone on before that verse. He's referring to chapters 1 through 3, 
where let me summarize what one through three are. And that is this, that we once were far from God in our hearts in our, and in our lives. But he has brought us near through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so as a summary statement of the gospel, Paul now says, therefore, based on the gospel, Paul takes the imperative of live in unity and grounds it in the gospel of indicatives. This is what has been done for you, therefore, now live this way. Had he reversed those things, had he said, now, you go live in unity and didn't ground it in the gospel, all we have is the imperatives, some of us would be incredibly good, disciplined people working on unity, and others would be working on disunity. Because you would have no choice, because you have no power, you have no hope for what unity truly is without the gospel. And so Paul does this over and over again in his letters. He will start with uh, the first half and ground everything that he's going to say in the latter half, that he's going to address some problem in the church, some hope of the future of the church, in the indicative of the gospel of what Christ has done for us, because he knows apart from that we can do nothing that he's going to command to do. And so with that in mind, Paul's therefore is the weight of everything he's going to say in the following verses and chapters. And so he he tells us we've been called into this church, which is a family. And he calls this an immeasurable rich gift. I can tell you for many years... Before I became a pastor, before I went to seminary, I did not consider the church an immeasurable gift. I didn't have a negative view, but I didn't have a positive view. And maybe that's where you are. You don't have necessarily a negative view, but you don't necessarily have a positive view of the church. You just, it is. And so sometimes you come, and sometimes you just come late, and sometimes you don't come at all. Because... You don't see it as your family. You don't see it as integral to who you are and what you're about. Paul now calls us to walk together in a manner that is worthy of that calling. And the context of that manner is in the local church, the family of God. Christ didn't die for you and me. He died for us and we. And we forget that in our individualistic Western manifest destiny world that we live in. We tend to think that this is all about Jesus and me. And it's not. It's Jesus and we. We are in this together for better and for worse, for richer and for poor. Does that sound like a wedding? Well, that's the language that Jesus uses. He says, you are my bride and I am your bridegroom. Therefore, as diverse as we are, and we're not nearly as diverse as I would like and you would like us to be, 
But as diverse as we are in the way in which we think, the way we raise our children, the way in which we uh, are married, the way in, in which we do our work, in the way in which we do so many things, we are to be one in this thing, in the nature of the church, in our commitment to the bride of Christ, which Jesus died for. Unity doesn't mean conformity. We're not looking for everybody to wear the same uniform, you know, kind of khakis and a blazer. We're not asking you to think all alike, that everybody uh, agree with 108 points of theology. We're not asking for you to decide to raise your children to be married in the same way in which everyone else believes you ought to. But simply we are in one and unity around this gospel that has saved us and is changing us. And that we are eagerly to maintain that kind of unity. That's what he says in verse 3. That we are eagerly maintaining that unity of what we believe about the gospel. Well, what does it look like? That's really its nature. Look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Paul is identifying uh, just uh, four uh, characteristics or descriptors of the church. And the very first one is this idea of humility. He's not talking about the false humility you see sometimes athletes do when they have uh, scored the winning goal, but it was a team effort. He's not talking about that. He's talking about our, our common background that has brought us together and has become the foundation of our unity. He's saying that just the same thing Paul will say later in another one. Not many of you were smart. Not many of you were wealthy. Not many of you uh, come from uh, pedigrees. The way he under, we understand humility in context of our past is our own common shame. Our common guilt. Our common fear. Our common hurt. As the result of things that we have done and things that have been done to us. Chapter 2 says that all bor- uh, born are far from God. Aliens and strangers to the things of God. Our problem or our struggle is not to understand that is our past, but what do you do about it? That is that many of us uh, be, are like the guys who, who spend the night in a Holiday Inn Express and then do brain surgery. That is that we become amateur physicians uh, with each other. That is, we know what your problem is and we're going to help you fix that problem. That is, the problem with being an amateur is that we end up treating symptoms and not the core problem. That is, we look at the presenting symptoms that someone has and therefore don't go deep enough into the human heart. What I'm trying to get at is is that often that we'll meet someone in our midst and we see a particular struggle, and it may not even be something they're struggling with, it just is their life, 
And we run into that symptom rather than recognizing that we need to address the real problem. That is, in our church from time to time, we've got people in our midst who have specific struggles. A couple might be living together before marriage. And if that's you, I am not harping on you. I'm using you as an illustration. Or simply someone who is struggling with their sexual sexuality. And so what we do is we begin to dive in on those presenting issues, those symptoms, when in reality they're far from God in the things of God. And that's where we need to address. That's where we need to come alongside and help and grow. But that takes humility. Instead of humility saying, I was like you and if you will allow me, I can help you be like me. That's not humility, that's arrogance. I once struggled with what you struggled, but I can show you how to have victory over that. That's arrogance, not humility. Humility is, I'm just like you. Because the core problem that we all have is the same. We are born far from God. And we're aliens and strangers to the things of God. And that everything that comes out of that are the struggles of our lives, the symptoms of that core problem. You see, humility allows us to stand next to someone, not above them or below them, but with them. Humility humility sees our helplessness to save ourselves or even to fix other people. And that's hard to admit because humans by nature want to fix the problems. Ours and everyone else's. But the truth of the gospel is that everyone in this room and everyone outside this room needs a rescue from the outside, not the inside. Jesus bore the consequences of our shame by taking the shame upon himself and receiving the punishment our shame deserved. And we receive that not by works, but by faith. This is the medicine of the gospel that this church pours into the wounds of shame and fear and guilt and hurt. But in order to do that, you and I, me mainly, must first admit we cannot fix our brokenness or the brokenness of others. Humility is when we stop trying and trust the one and the only one who can. Don't you see, when we try to fix people, we're telling God, I got this one. God, you just sit back. You've equipped me. I've got this one. Is that not the same thing Eve told God in the Garden of Eden? If you just let me have this tree, I'm going to know what you know, and I got it. The whole planet's mine. And what did that do to humanity? It made us born far from God. And it made us aliens and strangers to the things of God. 
Only God heals brokenness. Not man. Not even the best in us. Or of us. One more he says is not only humility is a descriptor of the church, but so is gentleness. How we speak and act toward others is to be defined by gentleness. And this is the, the pot calling the kettle black. I understand. I am not a gentle person. But if I don't grow, if we don't grow in the way in which we treat one another, then it is to the detriment of the church. The only thing I have learned in reading about millennials, they're about 18 to about 30, 35 years old. They're not monolithic. We want to we want to put everybody in the same category and think they're all the same. That just helps us. But it's not true. They're not monolithic. But one of the things that we see in church is that there's a tremendous growing interest of spirituality and in, in a in a desire to understand and know Jesus. A tremendous affection for him. And you knew there would be a but but with a diminishing affection for the local church. To me, that's oxymoronic. But I have to admit that's what we see. Let me tell you someone who speaks for that generation, even though he's outside that generation. His name is Marcus Oliver Johnstone Mumford, the singer in Mumford and Sons. He is a son of a pastor, and he said this, I don't like the word Christian. It carries so much baggage. So I would not call myself a Christian. The word conjures up religious images I don't really like. I have my personal views about Jesus and who he was. But I have a kind of separated myself from the church. You see, one of the reasons that I think, it's not certainly the only reason, but one of the reasons that particular group of people, if you could call them a group, they've got some fatigue toward these cultural wars that waged from about the 70s through the early 2000s. And because they're fatigued by that, they're fatigued because they're so tired of identifying with a group that is primarily known for what they're against rather than what they are for. Their perception, I'm not saying it is true, perception. And I believe that's one of the reasons we see our own children leaving the church. Because our posture toward people, particularly those who don't agree with us, don't think like us, don't act like us, we have not been gentle. That is, in order to become gentle, I have to see you the way Jesus sees you. You have to see each other the way Jesus does, with dignity, created in the image of God as image bearers. This is why John Perkins said, you don't give people dignity, you affirm the dignity that is already there in them. And gentleness requires us to affirm other people's dignity in the words that we use and the posture we have toward them. Patience. We live in an instant world. 
It's a shame. We don't have time to sit and have conversations. And even when we do, we're on our personal computer devices. But people and culture are very different than than instant Mac. That is, they change very slowly. We, we desire for people to experience the freedom and love and peace and healing that we've experienced. We want them to have that. And we want it now. The problem is, that's not how people work. God does not promise you those things immediately. And certainly not fully. He doesn't even promise in this life you will have all those things. I want you to know, no one wants your healing more than Jesus, including you. Patience requires corrected vision. To be able to see people with the end in mind, to see people with the dignity that God has granted them and the perfection that he is bringing, the newness. We are not called to change people but to patiently walk alongside one another, asking God to change us all. That's different because he's the only one that can. I remember a lady who had been married to her husband for a long time. She came in for pastoral counseling and and she said, my husband's a non-Christian. I've been witnessing to him for about 30 years. Well, I said, well, what was that like? And she said, I have been leaving him tracks all over the house. I put a daily bread in the bathroom so that when he's in the bathroom, he's got time to have a devotion and maybe that will help. I said, well, why don't you try this just for a little while? Take all that stuff out of your house and just pray. Pray that God would change his heart. He's a believer today. But not because she left tracks around the house, but because the only God that can change a human heart is him and not us. Bearing with one another. This is another beautiful picture of the church. Brokenness sometimes feels like a weight. Sometimes it's so heavy on our backs, we can't carry it anymore. We need a break. And so part of being in the church, part of being a family, part of the consequences of being in this family is to go to someone who has been carrying a weight for a long time and carrying it for them for a while. Let me show you where this is in this text. When Paul uses the word bearing, we tend to, we tend to, to, to think differently than Paul does. Paul's talking about caring or sharing. That is that at some points in our lives, whether it's through grieving or raising children or simply uh, uh, being underemployed or under, unemployed, the weight of that over a long period of time can be devastating and surely exhausting. And so Paul is encouraging the church to be typified by people who are willing to step into that, not away from that, and to help shoulder that for a while, while they can catch their breath. You think about in our church how many 
uh, people are, are single parents trying to raise their children in a fractured family or simply by themselves, those who are under and, and unemployed, people who are grieving. We've had a lot of people this year whose spouses passed away and therefore they're going through a horrible grieving process, divorced, abused, and those with addictions. Sharing burdens may last a while, weeks, months, and years. And I think we are incredible in a crisis. We rush like blood to a wound. But it's not long when that burden gets to be long, we begin to move on. <clears throat> and and I, my concern with that is that it might communicate something we don't want to communicate. And that is whatever it, you're struggling with, you need to get over. Because there are other people we need to take care of. Rather than... We're going to walk alongside of you as long as it takes, which could be the rest of your or their lives, which is very different. Are we ready to share the weight for the long haul? Unity is seen, not just talked about. Paul is describing a robust and thick community. To what end? Where's that going? What's the, what's the purpose? What's the goal? Look at verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When Paul uses the word peace, he doesn't mean copacetic. Everything gets along. Everything's decent and orderly. What he's talking about is not the absence of conflict, but wholeness. He's talking about shalom. He's talking about a kind of peace that where pieces of our lives are put back together the way that they were intended to be. Paul's not saying, hey, guys, in the church, you have no disagreements. We have lots of disagreements. You can't have two people and not have three opinions. Paul has been talking about our brokenness. Paul's talking about the unity of with healing, human flourishing in Christ includes putting pieces back together through the gospel. The church is all about us pulling in the same direction toward wholeness, the bond of peace for the individual, but also for our community. There are things over 54 years that have fractured that need to be healed. And only the gospel can do that. Only God can do that through the power of the work of Christ. And even if it's not complete in this life, this is what we work for. This is what we pray for. This is what we dream about. True peace. This kind of unity is work. That's why he says it's eager. we need to be eager to maintain. Peace with God has been accomplished in Christ. Peace with each other? That's another story. We must learn to disagree without losing our unity. If anybody needs to, to learn that is me. I will not lose you in to win an argument. And can we stand up for truth without losing our unity? 
We are to work hard to maintain our unity, even if that means I don't get my way. Here's the promise. His work makes our work sure. Because we want unity, we work on unity. Because God's work has brought about peace with us, our peace with one another is assured. Even if we don't taste it perfectly now. Let me give you some basis for that unity real quick. I love these. Notice these ones and how many there are. Somebody can count. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your uh, to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. How many were there? Seven. That's not an accident. There's not just seven of them. Paul is telling you, I'm not giving you a complete list. It represents a complete list. Augustine, when when he wrote on these verses, St. Augustine in the 4th century, he said that in the 5th century, this was the first creed of the church. This was the first essentials that they had to agree on to hold the unity together. Augustine is the one who wrote this. In the essentials, we find unity. In the non-essentials, we have liberty. In all things, charity. It's another word for love. Paul is saying that we are a body of Christ, one body. To say that you can love Christ and not his church is the same thing as saying you love me, but you don't love my wife. That's an impossibility for you to love me and not love her. Or vice versa, because we're one. Jesus is so identified with his church that it hurts when his people are persecuted. We know that because that's exactly what Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, when have I persecuted? He says, when you persecute the least of these, you persecute me. One spirit, the Holy Spirit dwells in you and in the church. One hope. Our hope is in what Christ accomplished on the cross for us and that one day he's going to return to make all things new. One Lord. The head of the church is not the pastor. The head of the church is not the elders. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. And therefore, we ask these questions. What does Christ want rather than what Bruce wants? Rather than what you want? What reflects the gospel? What pictures this kind of unity to the watching world? One faith. The righteous live by faith. We receive the works of Christ by faith. We grow in the gospel by faith. Faith is how Christians become Christians and how Christians grow. One baptism. Please understand, Paul is not talking about the mode, how much water you use. Paul's not talking about here about when someone is baptized. Paul is talking about the meaning of baptism. That it is the sign of inclusion into the visible church because that is a picture of the gospel. Therefore, everyone in church should be baptized and bear that sign. One God and Father, we have been adopted into the family because God is the father of that family. But that implies that you no longer, I can no longer live as an orphan. With all of the crazy uncles and inappropriate aunts, we are family forever. 
And God is going to show you the very person that offends you the most, makes you most uh, nauseous, is going to be your roommate. And you can't ask for a new dorm room. Where does this power come from? Look, he says in verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave the gifts to man. In saying he ascended, what does that mean? But he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above in the heavens, that he might fill all things. He's talking about the gospel is the gift, because when he talks about the descending of Jesus, he's talking about the crucifixion and the death of Christ, taking on the punishment of man for our sins. When he's talking about the ascending, he's talking about the resurrection, the healing of the brokenness, and he's the first fruits. When he talks about leading the host captives, he's talking about the return of Christ to make all things new, where the where the grave gives up their dead. So what is the gift given to us? It not only saves us from our shame and our brokenness and our hurt and our fears, it empowers us to live in this kind of unity together. It empowers us to proclaim this to the world. And so the gospel is immeasurable. If you this morning don't know the gospel, when we get ready to sing this last song, just come. There'll be plenty of elders and their wives up here who would love to pray with you and explain the gospel. If you need to repent of disunity, come. Because they will pray with you and work with you about creating the unity. If you're hurting, come. Because they'll pray for your hurting. And we'll try to fix it. But they'll ask God to fix it. So do it during this last song as we sing together. But before we do, let me just pray. Father, thank you again so much that you have called us into this grand, beautiful church. That it's not a building. That it's not, that it's not the money. It's not the trappings and the programs. It is the people that you have called. And some of us are hurt, and some of us are broken into pieces. And so, Father, heal us. Help us to eagerly maintain the unity that you have created here through the work of Christ in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.